our intention is to be the long-term owner. This is not an investment where we're looking to make a few changes and reposition it and sell it. You know, we're from this region. We know how important some of these local assets are to the region. So our, our goal is to, to make this more of a transformative asset for Pittsfield and help it get back to where it's been historically in terms of a great asset for the local market, but also expand it where we can to help draw in people from outside the region and really have that kind of economic development acceleration that we think it has the potential to do. So we're taking a long view on Pittsfield. We're not, uh, you know, we're not coming in and, and buying things and flipping them. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. We've got new owners up at Biscay. If you don't know about that little Berkshire's gem, I'm going to tell you all about it. First, though, remember to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Also, drop me an iTunes review if you like the show. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook at The Storm Skiing Journal. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. The Mountain Gazette returns in November for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 31, focus on Biscay, Massachusetts. All right, we've had a monster run here on the Storm Skiing Podcast talking to the leaders of Saddleback, Mount Snow, Sugarbush, Jay Peak, Cannon, Sugarloaf, and the Fairbank Group. Those are all big, important ski areas, but none of them could exist without ski areas like Biscay. This is the town hill in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, in the heart of the Berkshires. This is a family hill. It is a learning hill. It is a hill with a legendary race program. That's not to say it's a speed bump. It's got a respectable 700 feet of vert and some fun terrain tucked in alongside the tamer stuff. It's also got awesome history. It's been in continuous operation since 1932. It was a stop on the old New York ski train lines. But Biscay has been puttering along for years. It needed an adrenaline shot, and it got one this spring when new owners came in and partnered with the owners of Berkshire East and Catamount to overhaul and modernize the ski area. They've spent all summer doing that, and we are going to hear all about that progress today. Let's do it. My guests today are leading the resurgence of Busquet Mountain in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Founded in 1932, Busquet is one of the oldest continuously operated ski areas in the United States. Earlier this year, Milltown, a private investment group whose mission is to improve the quality and quantity of opportunities to live, work, and play in the Berkshires, purchased Busquet. CEO Tim Burke joins me today. Also on the program, Busquet General Manager Kevin McMillan, who joins Busquet after a 28-year career at Zor Outdoor. Finally, we are joined by Krista Schmiedinger, a two-time Olympian, U.S. National Champion, and two-time World Junior Medalist, who is partnering with Busquet to develop their youth programming. She will contribute to the race club and snow sports school and assist with race and school program design, instruction input, and one-on-one opportunities for young skiers. So good to welcome you all to the podcast today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, Tim, I want to start with you and the purchase of the mountain back in June. Uh, so in June, Milltown announced that it was purchasing Busquet from longtime owners Sherry and PJ Roberts. How long had that deal been in the works, and what made you decide it was time to make the purchase happen? Well, we first uh, had Busquet under contract actually in December of uh, 2019. So it had been in the works for, for quite a while. Uh, and even prior to that, we were, um, you know, friendly with Sherry and, and PJ over the years, really since Milltown was formed back in 2016. So we, we had a really strong familiarity with the mountain and the business. Um, and I think last year around this time, we 
we kind of revisited the dialogue with Sherry and got a better understanding of kind of her interests and timelines and, and frankly, we're, we're able to agree on terms that would both um, help Bosque get open for last season and, you know, initiate a transition to Milltown over time. So uh, it was it was uh, about, you know, early December last year when we were able to get, um, you know, at least an agreement in place, and then we took uh, the following few months after that to conduct our due diligence and work through all the different um, points of the deal, and it kind of ended up extending a little bit longer than we anticipated. We initially planned on closing in March and ended up closing in May, but um, at the end of the day, we were able to, to acquire um, Bosque and, and all of its assets um, kind of late spring of, of this, earlier this year. And was that a COVID delay? No, actually, COVID didn't really have a, a lot of um, implications on the delay. It was more just a it was a complicated transaction. There's a lot of different pieces to uh, Bosque. It's not just one parcel. It's actually five parcels of land. It's an operating mm. business. Um, you know, there's a lot of environmental considerations. There's a pond. There's a lot of equipment and infrastructure, and um, so it's just a lot of different things to to sort through and. Um, I think throughout that process, we just ran into some um, delays along the way in terms of getting results of of some due diligence items. So COVID didn't really have a whole lot uh, to do with the delay. It was just more the transaction was, I think, a lot more complicated than uh, anybody thought going into it. And and we just wanted to make sure that we did all of our homework prior to, to getting it done. And were you able to to simplify that structure a little bit with those five different pieces of land? Were you able to consolidate them now under one owner of Milltown, or is it more complicated than that? No, it's not more complicated than that. And, and they were all owned by by a single entity before uh, for, with Sherry, but um, there's different implications of the different parcels. And uh, so we, we do own all five parcels through the through the same entity, but we own the business through a different entity. Um, and we even uncovered a, a you know a very small parcel that um, was actually missed in the transaction, but was owned uh, owned by Sherry and then later transferred uh, to Milltown. So we own all of the land um, and the business operating entity. And um, so once we got that closed, we were able to move kind of pretty quickly here over the the summer to kind of transition into uh, you know more of the capital improvement space. So why is it that that different pieces of land have different considerations? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean the obvious one is is the the ski hill, right? There's a you know a large plot of land where the ski business operates, but then there are a number of, of other other parcels of land that have implications um, for the ski business, and some that don't. So there's a parcel across the street that has a snowmaking pond. There's uh, a pump house that's across the street that takes water from the pond and, and gets it over the mountain for snowmaking. Uh, there's another large parcel over on, uh, on the other side of Dan Fox Drive that's mostly woodlands. Um, there's a number of different easements on the land that Bosque is on from the Pines Condominium Complex and the Berkshire Natural Resources Council. So there's just a lot of different um, stakeholders involved and business implications that we really needed to understand thoroughly and, and test before we were comfortable taking over. So it was important to Sherry that she sell the ski area to someone who wanted to continue to operate it as a ski area. So you could avoid a situation like you had out in Pennsylvania a few years ago where new owners came in and they bought Alpine Mountain, which was a long time, long running ski area, and decided to use the property for other purposes and shut down the skiing component of it. So clearly you made your intent to continue to operate this as a ski area um, known up front. Yes. Yeah, that was definitely part of the plan. And I think it's, you know, we viewed it as the, the best use of, of the land. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's got a lot of unique qualities as it pertains to a ski area. It's it's a small mountain, but it's got, I think, a lot of variety in terms of terrain. It's got good pitch. Uh, and it's got a lot of history and a lot of uh, local loyalty from a customer base. So I think there was there's a lot of advantages to Basque. And I think the location is certainly a big one, being located you know, one of the few ski areas that's actually located in a city. Uh, and I think from a Berkshire County standpoint, it's in one of the best locations in the Berkshires, right, you know, right in between Pittsfield and Lenox and, and easily accessible from a lot of different locations. Um, so, yeah, we we viewed from, from the get-go that the ski 
um, ski operations was going to be a core part of the business, not the only part of the business, but definitely part of the core that we wanted to uh, invest in and, and try to help um, continue on for the future. So the Milltown Investment Group, I believe, is actually headquartered right there in Pittsfield. Uh, tell us a little bit about Milltown, Tim, and why Busquet fits into your business model. Sure. So Milltown is an investment fund in Pittsfield. Uh, we do a number of different things, um, but our, our kind of main mission is is looking to make Pittsfield a better place to live, and that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Um, we invest in uh, you know a fair amount of real estate. We own uh, about 150 units of housing in Pittsfield, where we're trying to uh, enhance the quality of, of housing options for local employees and residents. Um, we do a fair amount of community work and, and working with nonprofit organizations from more of a, a philanthropic standpoint. Uh, and then we have begun to accumulate uh, kind of a, a reasonable amount of more local assets, and, and that's those are typically operating businesses where uh, we come in and, and are able to get a transaction done and try to um, help the business stabilize and move forward. And I think we, we think about that from the standpoint of trying to find assets that are have a lot of value for the Berkshires. And I think Bosquet is, is a great example of that. Um, we think it from a, you know, a skiing, but more of an outdoor recreation standpoint, it has just a tremendous potential uh, positioning in the Berkshires in terms of its ability to really drive local traffic and, and be a asset that, um, you know, locals can really take advantage of. I think there's certainly a, a tourism component to it as well, but, you know, Bosque, I think first and foremost is a local mountain and, and we see a lot of value to that. Uh, and I think, you know, more recently from a Milltown perspective, we've been focusing more on outdoor recreation and, and that's everything from, you know, working uh, with the city of Pittsfield on Springside Park to trying to improve trail networks uh, to sponsoring, you know, races and, and other outdoor activities. So uh, we see outdoor recreation as a huge um, differentiator for the Berkshires, and, and Bosque is a great representation of that, not just from a skiing standpoint, but from a hiking, um, you know, potentially biking in the future. And, and from a location standpoint, it just has a great, um, you know, thematic outdoor recreation uh, presence, you know, right in the center of the Berkshires. So looking at your business model of finding these uh, assets that have a lot of potential, um, is your intention here to go into Biscay, invest in it, fix it up, and then find a permanent long-term owner, or is your intention to be that long-term owner? I think as we look at you know, how we've approached this, our intention is to be the long-term owner. Um, that doesn't mean we won't have help or, or partners along the way. Um, you know, we're not ski area operators by uh, by trade, so we definitely are you know, need a lot of support there. But this is not a, a investment where we're looking to make a few changes and reposition it and sell it. I think, you know, we're um, you know we're from this region. We know how important some of these local assets are to the region. So our our goal is to, to make this more of a transformative asset for Pittsfield and help it be, um, you know get back to where it's been historically in terms of a great asset for the local market, but also um, expand it where we can to help draw in people from outside the region and really have that kind of economic development um, acceleration that we think it has the potential to do. So I, I think overall it's definitely more of a, a long-term approach for us. Um, and that's pretty consistent with, I think, how we've approached a lot of different pieces of our business model, you know, from a, business investment or real estate investment standpoint, we're, we're taking a long view on, on Pittsfield. We're not, uh, you know, we're not coming in and, and buying things and flipping them. I think there will be a lot of people in the community and a lot of people in the Berkshires who are really relieved to hear that, Tim. Um, you know, Massachusetts has obviously a very strong ski culture and very deep ski history. Um, I hosted Jeremy Davis, who's the founder of the New England Lost Ski Areas Project on the podcast last year. And there used to be nearly 200 ski areas in Massachusetts, and you're now down to a dozen or so. Uh, sadly, another one closed down recently. Ski Blandford announced in March that it was closing down. Um, the owners of Butternut and Otis Ridge had uh, had been propping that one up, but decided it was no longer sustainable. 
just a hypothetical for you. If you dig into Biscay, you have success there. Uh, you find that that ski area operating is 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 something that works for Milltown. Is it possible that you could take a look at Blandford there in the Berkshires and and look at that as possibly a project to bring back online? Um, I mean, it's a fair question, but I, I I would say it's probably unlikely. I think, you know, like I said, ski area operations is not part of our background or experience. I think we're we're learning a lot already on Bosque, but you know, we look at Bosque not necessarily from a you know let's get into the ski industry because it's a great investment and more because it's a high potential asset for Pittsfield. So that's really where I think our, our focus is. And I think along the way, we're going to do everything we can to make it operationally successful. Um, but I think that's going to include things beyond skiing because for it to be sustainable, it needs to have really a year round presence and, and customer focus. Um, so I think there's a lot for us to figure out at Bosque to make it sustainable successful and sustainable long-term and that goes beyond skiing. So uh, I think, I think we've got our hands full there and I don't really see us looking around at other ski areas uh, in the near future. Fair enough. So last week on the podcast, I hosted Andy Shepard, the general manager of Saddleback up in Maine, which is coming back online after five winters. Uh, They were purchased by Boston based Arcturus impact fund. And there's a lot of echoes with what they're doing and what you're doing. And, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with their business model, but essentially our terrace focuses on fixing up distressed community assets in underserved areas, whether that be in inner cities or in rural areas um, and transforming them into profitable businesses. Uh, my understanding is that they do intend to find a long-term owner for Saddleback after five, six, seven years of getting the mountain in shape. Um, but other than that, the difference between the long-term ownership aspirations, it sounds to me a lot like what Milltown is attempting here. Um, how familiar are you with our Terrace's business model? And and if you if you are, do you see similarities? Or and and what are the differences between what you're trying to do here? I'm not very familiar with it. I've I've uh, heard of them tangentially. My knowledge is that they um, I think have a, a focus on opportunity zones in, in some areas. So that's certainly. Um, something that we we haven't really pursued from a structural standpoint there's obviously Pittsfield has a lot of opportunity from you know an opportunity zone um, perspective but we we just haven't really found that that vehicle has worked for us Uh, so that's not been a big part of our model Um, but otherwise I think thematically it sounds fairly consistent with what we're doing but I just don't know enough of the details to really comment too much on it. So when you announced the purchase of Busquet, the element of that announcement that really got my attention is your partnership with the Schaefer family who work on, quote, operational and capital decisions and investments. Uh, The Schaefer family, for those who do not know, are the longtime owners of Berkshire East Ski Area. Uh, They also recently purchased Catamount. John Schaefer is a good friend of the podcast and has been on a couple of times. they're very seasoned in, in the vagaries of, of running ski areas in the Berkshires, which is not always an easy place to do that. Uh, why did you partner with the Schaefer's to help you run Biscay? Well, we've known John and Jim over the past few years. Uh, you know, we've crossed paths a few different times, mainly as it's pertained to Biscay. And, you know, for a variety of reasons over the years, we, you know, nothing came together on that topic. But I think once we um, were able to, get Bosque under agreement, we knew pretty quickly that we were going to need a lot of help. And, um, you know, based on our, our prior relationship and, and obviously their expertise, uh, it seemed like a good fit. They, they you know, Berkshire East and Catamount are, uh, you know, different mountains than Bosque, but I think they're, they have a lot of similarities in terms of, uh, you know, they're not that much bigger. They're in, you know, geographically similar areas. Um, and I think, John and Jim Schaefer, having just grown up in this business, just have a wealth of knowledge that we don't. And I think it, it would have been extremely challenging to go into this endeavor without support of industry veterans. And kind of what we've been learning at Bosque is just when you have a ski area that is this old, there's a lot of updating that needs to be done. And we have really uh, enjoyed having their support on that side of uh, 
the ledger in terms of capital upgrades as we get going. And I think there's a lot of synergies across their business where we're able to uh, deploy resources, whether it be um, people or equipment or uh, even software systems. I think just, they've done all this before. So we're not, we're not necessarily recreating the wheel from a process standpoint. We're, we're recreating a lot on the infrastructure side. Um, but they have a lot of relationships in the industry and have been able to, uh, to come to us with different ideas and proposals um, on the infrastructure side to help us get this done efficiently. And we've, we're, we're basically rebuilding uh, the entire on-mountain operation in four months, and it's, it's just been a uh, sprint from, from day one, and, and they've uh, been tremendous partners for us. And how much did they help in the process when you were purchasing the mountain? Just come out and kick the tires and, and just say, okay, yeah, this can work. Yeah, not as much in the purchase process. And, and you know, we weren't really sure how it was going to pan out in the, in the middle of that process in terms of who, you know, would we do this on our own? Would we partner? Would we um, try to contract it out completely? So there, I think, were a lot of different options floating around. John and Jim really came in towards the end of the process and helped us understand what some of the major upgrades that needed to be done would be. And, um, you know, they were instrumental in our kind of decision and approach to the, the new lift and helping us position it on the mountain. And, and you know, they're guys who can walk up the face of the mountain and identify a lift line in, uh, you know, a few minutes. And, and, you know, even four or five months later after we did this, the, the lift line is almost in that exact location from, from when we hiked up the, hiked up in the spring and said, here's where we think it should go. So uh, I, I think it was less about, you know, during the deal, can this work, and, and more towards the end of the process when we felt like, all right, let's let's really start to look under the hood here and see what needs to be done for this year and then what are, what are long-term solutions. I think we've got a nice blend there of, you know, all of the investments that we're making right now are really designed to set up Bosque for the next 10 to 15 years, which I think is, is pretty exciting from a customer standpoint. So we're not necessarily putting Band-Aids on the mountain this offseason. We're making major infrastructure changes that should help this place um, be sustainable for the long term. So that, that, and John and Jim have been with us every step of the way on that. Yeah, I was talking to John about catamount and one of the first things they did when they bought catamount was cut new trails and i asked him did you hire one of these engineering firms to come in and, and map the mountain and look at the topo maps and and decide the optimal place to put trails and, and this is the approach that a lot of the bigger resorts will take now when they're trying to cut trails and he said nope i just walked the mountain and, and figured it out and and we cut them um so yeah they, they have this intuitive knowledge i think that comes from just growing up on Berkshire East and having their hands in every part of the business for a long time. Once you brought them in, Tim, was there any reality checks where some of the things that maybe you thought weren't going to be a big deal, you realized were going to be major projects? Um, we've probably had weekly reality checks and Kevin would probably <laughs> chime in and say we've had daily, daily, daily reality checks. Um, it's been uh it's been a tremendous challenge, uh, Stuart, to be to be honest with you in terms of there there was really no way we could have uncovered in our due diligence period um kind of the exact situation that we're that we're working through right now. And I think uh, you know, kinda of going back to my last statement on the investments that we're making having that long term mentality, that's that's really helped us um kind of maneuver through some of these challenges because we know that we're not necessarily making decisions just for one year. We're trying to make decisions for the long term and that some of these decisions should save us money long term. So some of that helps. Um, but I would say from an infrastructure standpoint, I mean, anytime you have a mountain that, I mean, it's been open almost 90 years and there's a lot of mm -hmm. um, his history there that is either uh, you know, buried underground or there's no, you know, there's, there's no playbook for how Bosque was built. Uh, to put it put it simply, there's no um, you know procedure or booklet for how it's laid out, for how the the piping is laid out or the electrical system is laid out. Uh, so bringing all of that to a place where it is up to code and is safe um, provides a good customer experience from a snowmaking and a, uh, a, a skier movement standpoint, and also will last long term is is a significant challenge and it's one that. 
uh, has, you know, grown substantially, I think, since we closed on the property. But it's one that we're, um, you know, I think I think the other thing that's shifted since we closed is that we've we've really bought into the potential of the location, uh, both for skiing and beyond. So uh, I think that that helps us guide some of those decisions. So aside from bringing the shavers on, which is obviously a huge component in getting the whole thing ramped up, you did have to find a new general manager, and we have Kevin with us today. Um, tell us about that search, Tim, and why Kevin was the right leader for the ski area. Sure. So I, I think, um, you know, we certainly thought from the get-go that we would need, uh, you know, local operational support, and, you know, there are not a lot of people in the region, despite kind of the skiing history, that have, uh, you know, that outdoor recreation uh, business op- operational experience. Um, and with Zora being, uh, you know, kind of part of that Berkshire East umbrella, uh, John and Jim obviously know Kevin pretty well and were able to help us get a dialogue going and, and get him on, on board as his Zora season was finishing up uh, earlier this fall. So uh, I think for us, it was a tremendous opportunity to bring somebody in who really knows how to run these businesses. Um, and prior to Zora, Kevin had uh, you know, some experience at Berkshire East, so he understands, you know, the ski business and, and how that works. Uh, but I think that the big thing that, that you know, I, I liked when we started talking to Kevin is just how focused he was on the customer experience and how that uh, – and, and building a team that um, that was going to embrace a new culture at Bosque from an employee standpoint. So those are all – those are both things that I think are critical to the, the long-term success, building a team and really focusing on the customer – uh, and he's got experience uh, in droves with both of those things, so it was a it was a pretty I think simple simple decision for us. And since he's come on board, um, you know we've had a lot of different um, challenges come at us from different angles. But I think you know the team's done a tremendous job building up um, their own internal resources and capability, both you know on the on the business side and on the on mountain side. So it's been um, you know, it's been an interesting journey, but we're, you know, we wouldn't be here without Kevin and, and the team that he's building out. So, Kevin, I'm sure you've been going 100 miles an hour since day one, uh, getting Busquet into shape for this coming season. I, I do want to talk in detail about some of the mountain improvements, but before I do that, can you just give us the high-level overview of Busquet's transformation over the summer? Because I'm sure that the ski area that skiers walked away from in March is not what they're stepping into this month or next month or whenever you open. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Um, it's going to be quite radically different. And I think that that's exciting for everybody that lives locally. Um, as Tim said, there's a, there's really a, a passionate local following for Basque. And so we've um, sort of started to understand that from a marketing perspective. And that's been really helpful in driving some of our operational um, decisions too. So we're um, firstly looking at um, the culture of the mountain and, the, um, and trying to build a strong culture um, with uh, um, employees that we're bringing on board, um, sort of really clearly outlining our expectations for how we show up at work. Um, and that's been um, sort of a fun challenge for us um, in the context of all the capital projects that are going on here too. Um, so our big focus is around culture, around dealing with the ski area in a COVID year, making sure um, that it's safe for both the employees and the customers. Um, and in addition to that, just um, really dialing in the operations too. So making sure that we have strong surface conditions, um, solid lifts to uh, get people up to the top of the mountain, um, and then and then a focus on organization too. So parking, um, how we are going to utilize the space around the lodge, um, and um, and just the overall guest experience. So let's talk first about that chairlift in in true Schaefer style. This is not a new chairlift, but a as John calls it, a new used lift. So you have a triple chair that came down from the Hermitage Club. Uh, which was now it, it had been a redundant lift up there because they put that six pack to the top. Uh, so tell us about that triple chair, Kevin, and, and what that replaces. Yeah, so the triple chair, um, the terminal just got in, in place last week. It's very exciting to to watch that process play out. Um, that the triple chair 
um, build right now is um, on schedule, which is great. Um, we had a couple of setbacks with the weather, um, but right now we're feeling pretty optimistic that that chair will be up and running operationally for the ski season, which is wonderful. It replaces the yellow chair, which is on the far side of the mountain, skiers left, um, and it replaces the green chair as well. Both those chairs are now both gone from the mountain. Are you selling the old chairs? <laughs> we did. So the green chairs are in storage. Uh, the yellow chairs, uh, we kicked around the idea of selling them. We thought, wow, it'll be wonderful for um, a lot of the locals to, um, to get a little piece of Basque history. Um, and so we um, put the yellow chairs um, up uh, for sale for season pass holders only first, um, fully expecting that we would expand that to um, to folks um, beyond the season pass crowd at some point. But the season pass holders surprised us by buying all 84 chairs in um, in about 20 hours. <laughs> it was wow. quite quite the process. <laughs> yeah, amazing. <laughs> so you decided the green lift was no longer necessary. Exactly. Yeah. So that will not be replaced. The green lift will not be replaced. No. So that triple chair is going to be your new summit chair, uh, long-term, do you have plans to replace other lifts or add new ones? So we've, we have two new surface lifts that we've purchased that we're um, and currently installing on the new beginner area um, and over at tubing. Um, and so those will provide a much more reliable experience for the, for the customer here. Um, the plan is to do an incremental rebuild for the blue chair, um, and or replace the blue chair, depending on what's on the market at the time when we start to look at the blue chair. Um, between the the, um, the blue chair double and the triple, we have enough on mountain capacity, I think, for the terrain that we currently have. Um, if we expand our terrain, then then we'll start considering um, a new chair, but it's not, it's not um, on the immediate horizon. So tell us about the new beginner area. Where is it? And how is it different from the old beginner area? Yeah, the, the old beginner area was over by the maintenance area, which was really a long hike for for skiers to carry their equipment over um, to get to the carpet to start um, skiing. And um, we decided that we wanted to move the beginner area closer to the lodge, closer to rentals, um, and um, and also closer to parking too. So the beginner area is over by the pavilion which is um, just as you're coming off of Drifter on the right-hand side. So um, it's right in front of the lodge, right in front of parking. Uh, super convenient for everybody. And it has the additional bonus this year of having the pavilion right next to it. So um, it's, a, it's a comfortable space for families and um, new skiers to, to enjoy that terrain um, and also be able to escape a little bit of the weather if they need to just relax and um, in, um, enjoy being in an enclosed space a little bit. And you said you're dropping a couple of new carpet lifts in there? Yeah. Yeah, we have a couple of um, sun kit um, carpets going in. Uh, one just to the um, skier's right of the new um, skier area and the other um, over by the tubing area. Yeah, they've done a really nice job at Catamount with that, where they have the two carpets that are kind of ad adjacent to each other, and they're just completely closed off from any sort of traffic coming down around them. Do you have a similar kind of protected setup for this area? Yeah, so we're essentially, um, we've divided the ski area into three components. We've got the um, the main lifts right in front of the lodge here, um, and so we'll have a lot of skier traffic sort of focused on that area um, and then um, off to the left we have the beginner area and then beyond that we'll have the tubing and so we really have sort of three distinct areas that um, that are actually in a COVID year super helpful to sort of distribute um, folks in in different areas so that we don't have mass gatherings all in one place which is kind of kind of helpful this year. And is tubing in the same location that it has been in previous years? Yeah, tubing is um, all the way over to the left as you're looking up the mountain. Um, we're looking at um, expanding possibilities over there um, in the long term, but right now tubing will stay pretty much the way it is. So as far as the trail network goes, do you have any surprises for us? Because I'm always amazed with uh, how quickly the Schaefers just cut new trails. <laughs> so are, are we looking at the same trail footprint 
that we're accustomed to at Basque, or, or, or you have any surprises for us? No, it's well, we've we've altered some terrain at the top of the mountain. Um, coming off the new chair, we changed. We've done some blasting up there, so that uh, there's a there was a problematic construction at the top of the mountain that um, that really made it sort of challenging um, to keep snow on the mountain up there, and also for um, folks unloading off the chair. And so we've um, done some blasting at the top of the mountain and changed the fall line up there. I think will make a, a huge difference to skiers. It will. It'll mean that um, uh, more beginner intermediate skiers can unload off the top of the chair, which I think will be exciting for folks. Um, and for racing too, I, it, um, it just is a little bit more expansive. So racing can stage up there and skiers can still unload off the top of the mountain without running into one another, which is kind of helpful. Beyond that, our focus has really been on um, just um, construction around the ski area. Um, as Tim said, there's we have a lot going on right now with the snowmaking, with the new chair, um, and just building this mountain from the ground up. And so uh, we don't really have the bandwidth to do much beyond planning for um, for trail expansion up on the up on the ski area right now. Plus, we're also we're running out of time. If 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 this was um, April or May, we we may have um, definitely looked into um, creating some surprises for the customer but right now um, being open is our is our main focus so as far as the trails that you modified are there any specific ones you can call out that skiers can expect to be different when you come off that summit lift um let me think so no i mean all the all the changes that we're doing are fairly subtle at this point Hmm. um i i'm not sure that um I'm not sure that it's going to be a, a big, big difference for folks other than um, just Roberto's shoot will be a little bit easier and Jew will be a little bit easier for folks to come off of. Um, down to the lower Main Street um, and Beeline, that area has opened up quite a bit. So um, there's now sort of an expansive area right in front of the new chair. We've um, gotten rid of some of the tree lines through that area. So um, it actually looks pretty amazing now it's, it's this big wide open space um and we're going to tuck the terrain park back where it normally has been um but i think that there'll just be a little bit more room to ski around the terrain park and still folks from the lodge area um will still be able to see the terrain park and um and see um uh, everybody coming down the mountain i think it, i think um the changes have been have been po- very positive great Tim mentioned that you have several different parcels of land that are knitted together. What is the potential footprint for the ski area? Is the current trail network as big as the mountain can get? Or if you wanted to, and and you had the time, obviously not this season, but in future seasons, uh, if the time was there, the capital was there, the will was there, could the mountain's footprint be expanded? And if so, how much? Um, Well, we're obviously currently limited by existing boundaries. um, And... For us, really, our focus. Um, I'm happy to be uh, to have those boundaries and 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 have them in place. Uh, really, our focus needs to be on making the ski area the best it can possibly be with its existing boundaries. And then once we have that dialed in, then we can look at other opportunities beyond that. Um, sometimes having uh, limitless expansion possibilities can be a real negative. Um, because it doesn't require you to have the discipline to get things um, really squared away with what you currently have. And and so I, I think that Basquet really um, needs to have a, a strong operational focus so that we can um, we can get the ski area running um, really well. And then we'll look and see what else we have um, in the way of um, possibilities to expand uh, one way that the shapers have expanded their skiing options over the years without making the mountain bigger is by glading some of the forested areas. And there are some limited glades at Busquet. Are, are there opportunities to thin more glades on the mountain as it's currently configured? Yes. Yeah, we would love to do some more glade skiing through this area and get that more intentional. Um, it's not going to happen this year, um, but it is a priority for us for the, for, for the following year. Any thoughts on where that could be? Um, off of ski, on skiers right off of Parker Trail, uh, 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 I think it probably makes the most sense. Um, and just mm-hmm. to the right of Russell Slope, I think you could probably um, 
you could probably do a little bit through there, but really dropping in off the top of Drifter um, through that wooded area um, would be. I think you could get quite a bit of quite a bit of um, terrain through there. It'd be kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, that all looks great. I, are you working on a new trail map? We do have a new trail map coming out. Yeah, awesome. Uh, when can we expect that? Um, in the very near future, I think that uh, the new trail map installation. Um, and the parking lot goes up um, in the next couple of weeks, I believe. Um, and we have a new website launching in the next, probably by the end of this month. Um, and so we'll have a whole lot more information about what we're doing and what we um, have to offer and how we're going to show up in the ski world um, by the end of this month. Terrific. Yeah, Catamount and Berkshire East both have beautiful trail maps. Is it in that same style? It is. Yeah, I the shapers have helped us um, tremendously, as Tim had mentioned, in um, in making some of the decisions. Um, obviously, our trail map is a little bit more simple, so um, uh, they definitely contributed to to the construction and creation of the trail map. Yeah, but we wanted to make sure that it it had a Bosque vibe rather than um, more of a continuation of the Berkshire East and Catamount vibe, and so um, we've had our uh, marketing and branding uh, team really focused on uh, trying to pull that together. So let's talk about snowmaking a little bit. What kind of condition was that snowmaking system in? And you know, Tim referred to some of the buried hidden pipes and such. So what kind of shape was that? Was that snowmaking system in? And, and how much work did you have to do to it in the off season? Yeah, the snowmaking has been our biggest area of surprise, obviously, because a lot of the snowmaking is underground. So as you dig it up, you really start to discover a whole bunch of treasures. Um, the snowmaking system was in pretty poor shape. It had been held together with duct tape and bubble gum for a long time. And honestly, to Sherry and PJ's um, testament, they really held it together and really made it work. But in order to in order to expand um, the snowmaking at Basque and to really um, make it a, a consistent deliverable, I, we really needed to revamp the whole system. And so that's what we've done. We've been digging up snowmaking pipe and replacing it. We've um, replaced um, most of the hydrants at this point. So a lot of the hydrants were, um, were homemade, which um, mm. was great. They've worked well for 30 years, but they're not rebuildable. And so we've had to pull them out um, and replace them. And so um, the hydrants were a surprise for us. We'd never really seen homemade hydrants in quite the um, <laughs> as often as you see them up here on Busquets. So, um, and then the the piping, you know, on, underground. Well, we, you can have a 10-inch pipe that runs into a forge pipe that then runs into a 6-inch pipe and then back to a 10-inch oh, wow. pipe. It was just whatever they had on hand. Um, was what they used, um, and with the, with the new system that we have here, it just wouldn't it just wouldn't fly. So um, we've uh, we've had to upgrade a lot of the piping. So Drifter will have all new air and water um, from top to bottom, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's it's been quite a process. And the guns themselves, did, did you bring in new guns? How, how what kind of shape were they in? The ones that you had. Um, so a lot of the pole guns, um, we've um, we've re um, we've worked, taken the nozzles out and refurbished the nozzles, put them back up. We've got um, 12 new SMI polecat pole towers coming out, which is kind of cool. We have 25 um, SMI grizzly stick guns, um, and then we've got three portable units that, um, that will move around the mountain as needed. And how's your water supply up there? <laughs> it's okay. Um, we would love to be able to expand it in some way if we could. Um, we are looking at strategies to use it the best way we can. Um, it's sufficient. Is that coming from that pond across the street that Tim referred to, or, or is there a secondary source? No, it's coming from the pond across the street. And, and you're, so you're constrained just by the practical matter of how much is in there, or are there environmental regulations about how much you can draw from that? Mostly we're constrained by how much water there is in there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, historically it's worked for the mountain. I don't see it, um, I don't see it being any different. Um, it, 
for us, we've just I mean, we've almost tripled the pressure in the snowmaking system. Um, we would like to move to an all-electric system at some point, and so um, we've put in a, or we're in the process of putting in a, a 23,000 volt uh, loop um, utility feed on the mountain, and so um, the snowmaking pond will end up being our our um, our Achilles Hill for expansion. But it, right now, we will be able to. Um, um, blow snow in a more snow in a shorter period of time, which I think in a in a New England winter is um, is our priority right now. So, terrific. And what is your target opening date? Uh, December nineteenth. Nice. So hopefully we can get some cooperative temperatures soon. Yeah, it's been crazy warm, which from a construction perspective has been good. It means that we've um, yeah. been able to sort of accelerate a lot of the projects that we've got going on, but we still are heavily in construction mode right now. Uh, how about your grooming fleet? What kind of condition was the was that in? Um, the grooming fleet was in pretty sad condition. We ended up scrapping um, pretty much everything, um, and mm. we uh, brought in a, a couple of new snowcats. They're all being uh, they're refurbished snowcats, so they're uh, mm-hmm. they're um, I think they call it the gold standard. So it's from plow to tiller. They go through them and, and refurbish them, and those should be on site in the next couple of weeks. Nice. Well, where did those come from? Uh, they're from New Hampshire. They're pronounced. Nice. Uh, any significant updates to the lodge? Um, no, we're actually our focus this year is going to be outside, um, and um, and so we're just doing some cosmetic stuff on the lodge. Um, the lodge will be just for um, just for employees. So um, our plan for um, food and beverage sales and just for general. Um, uh, use of the outside space will be uh, to create like a marketplace for folks. So we've been upgrading the pavilion space so that that is more comfortable for folks. Um, there'll be a bar um, up in the pavilion space serving um, some alcohol beverages, hopefully um, some um, a waffle bar um, and um, a hot chocolate area. We've um, ordered a few post some beam cabanas that we're going to distribute around the base area. Um, and we'll have a s'mores and hot chocolate area over between the beginner area and the tubing area um, with a couple of fire pits for folks to, to um, enjoy. Um, we have a bar that's inside the lodge that will be serving through an outside window. Um, and then we um, have a couple of fire pits um, that we're building around the area um, and uh, and then we'll we'll serve food. We'll try and do the food um, on busy weekends. We'll distribute it between three points. We have again we have those cabanas, so we'll do soup and we'll do um, hot beverages and so forth in one of those cabanas, and maybe um, a waffle area and one in in the pavilion. And then out of the bar area, we'll serve food out of the window um, and have people uh, pre-order their food and then pick it up. All sounds very nice. Sounds like a little outdoor carnival. Um, I want to shift here to to passes. So one of the most interesting parts to me of your partnership with the Schaefers is that Biscay joined the Berkshire Summit Pass with Berkshire East and Catamount. So for $599, skiers get unlimited access to all three mountains. Um, that pass actually was as low as $479 in the spring. What made you decide to offer a combined pass with the other mountains? It just made sense for Basquet. I mean, it, it's um, the Schaefer Resorts really just want Basquet to thrive, and I think that the Summit Pass enables us to do that. Um, and um, it's just another benefit for skiing at Basquet is to be able to ski at uh, Catamount and Brookshire's as well. Um, and also in a COVID year, it's, it's um, it's, it makes more sense, I think, for folks. Um, if you can get a summit pass, you really have no reason to leave Massachusetts. There, there are plenty of opportunities to ski and, and get a little variety. Uh, yeah, so the summit pass has been well received, and we're very excited to be part of it. And Busquet does still have a standalone season pass. Have you seen strong interest in this, or do you find most folks are opting for the summit pass? No, we've our our um, Basquet season pass sales have been strong this year, um, and that's partly to do with the loyalty, I think, of the of our local following. That because we're an urban skier, we're so convenient to 45,000 people that um, 
it just it just makes sense for folks to be able to buy a Bosquet pass and just be able to come out here. Um, that's how they plan their winters. That they'll be out here um, before work, after work. Um, we're we're so close to the to Pittsfield that you can you can come ski for a few runs and then and then still have the rest of your day. So. Um, it seems like the Bosque Pass makes a lot of sense for folks, and we've made a focus this year on our season pass holders as well. So the season pass holders obviously got first dibs on the yellow chair. Um, we're expecting capacity constraints for the year. Season pass holders don't have to pre-purchase tickets. There are no constraints for the season pass holders, so it gives them the flexibility that they um, sort of expect having a season pass traditionally. Um, There'll be other constraints for for daily ticket sales, obviously. So your Summit Pass partners, Berkshire East and Catamount, are also Indy Pass members, meaning the skiers with a $199 Indy Pass get two days at each of those two mountains. And Summit Pass buyers can tack an Indy Pass on for $129, giving them two days each at partner mountains like Cannon and J Peak and Magic. Uh, has Biscay talked to the Indy Pass about the possibility of joining that coalition? We're considering it. We won't consider it for this year. I think that um, in a non-COVID year where capacity constraints are not an issue, that it would be a great partnership for Basquet. Um, but right now, I think with the Summit Pass um, and with the loyal following that we have in the Pittsfield area, that we will, um, we will reach our capacity limits um, fairly regularly. And so... Um, mm. We don't want to confuse the issue at this point. So you mentioned daily lift tickets. Uh, previously, these have been very affordable at Biscay. Um, obviously, this year is a little bit different as you consider capacity restrictions. Just take us through your approach to day tickets this year. Um, how are you pricing them? Uh, are you limiting them? Um, will people be able to walk up to the mountain and buy a lift ticket? Yeah, good questions. Um, so there will be capacity constraints, obviously. The, the state um, will mandate that anyway, I think, for us, um, or already has. Um, and we want to start off um, really conservatively and make sure that we, are, um, we have our operations dialed. So for the first couple of weeks that we're open, um, those capacity constraints will be, um, will be pretty strong. Um, we are offering um, flex tickets and dynamic pricing, and so with the dynamic pricing, we're um, we're really encouraging folks to pre-purchase their tickets ahead of time. Um, and so you can get terrific deals on on ticket pricing if you do purchase a week or two out. The closer you are to the day of skiing, the more expensive those ticket prices will be. Um, we are hoping and expecting not to do any um, day off ticket sales. Um, we do have the ability to do it. Um, I'm hoping we won't have to. I'm hearing rumors that you are installing RFID gates. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Yeah, the entry gates are going Amazing. in in a couple of weeks. Amazing. Very exciting. Uh, okay, just real quick, Kevin, run us through your COVID-19 operating protocols. State of Massachusetts did release operating guidelines for ski areas uh, last week or the week before. I'm uh, curious if that pretty much lined up with what you were already planning um, and, and what your plan is and how closely that mirrors Catamount and Berkshire East and their operating plans. Yeah, I, I mean, they're very similar to Catamount and Berkshire East. I mean, our focus, again, will be on outside, so booting up in the car, um, skiing, um, and then um, and then leaving. So the Apres ski will be um, – condensed a little bit. I, I don't think it'll be quite such a, a long social hangout here. The RFID card system and the and the gates will really um, make that possible. It's sort of a touch-free process. You load up your RFID card um, and then you show up and you go ski and you really don't have to interact with anybody. We have the triple um, and the state thankfully um, is allowing us to load two people on the triple and leave a space in between. So um, it'll be like all the other ski areas where if you um, arrive together, you can ride together on a chairlift. Um, if you are um, a single, then you can go uh, as a single on the triple, uh, two singles on the triple or one single on the double. Um, and um, we are working out our traffic flow around the base right now so that we, um, again, are pushing um, folks in different areas and trying to disperse people so that we um, don't have gathering concerns. Um, it's it really 
it's it's important that we get this right. We don't want to end up with the social media posts that Europe ended up dealing with, um, and then getting um, the, and then having the state or city shut us down. And so um, we're um, we're working hard to figure out where our uh, traffic flow is and and how what our realistic on mountain capacity is. And that's exactly what Berkshire and, and Catamount are doing as well. I think that for us um, making this the decision early not to use the lodge um, has simplified the whole process for us. Now we really have explored options for outside spaces and trying to make them comfortable, knowing that um, when it's brutally cold out, that there's no real comfortable solution. I think that when it's super cold out, the only folks that are skiing here are the diehard skiers anyway, and those are the folks that are, are more than equipped to be able to boot up in their car, ski for a few runs, and then and then head off. Um, I don't think that you can easily accommodate um, a family of new skiers when it's 10 below out um, and keep them comfortable for long. So um, what we've done is really worked hard to figure out a system here at the mountain that works well for for 75, 80% of the days that we that we're expecting. So the families can learn to ski here, which is really our market. Um, Races can come and, um, and bang out a few runs through gates and, um, and keep their skills fresh, um, and locals can enjoy the area, um, knowing that they can go, come and go as they please, which is kind of nice. Well, that's a perfect transition to Krista, actually. So, so Krista, you you grew up skiing at Biscay. Tell us about that. Tell us what it was like to grow up at that mountain and and how that set you up to eventually compete in the Olympics. Yeah. So growing up. Um, an working class family, Bosque was really the ultimate playground, both in the winter and the summer. Um, it was an environment where, you know, all your senses could be free to explore, to be curious, and to be developed. Uh, the other thing skiing at Bosque taught me, in a very subtle way, um, is the value of boundaries, to ski intelligently, to have respect for the snow conditions and the closed slopes. Um, it was an ideal balance of freedom and parameters. You know, it's the same balance of risk and reward that set me up for success um, on the slopes and later at life. Later in life, um, you know, Bosque also had programs like the race club, the night, the night skiing, after-school programs, and high-quality um, instruction through their, their their ski school at the time. And these were all some of the building blocks you know, on which I built my ski career, uh, also instrumental were all the dedicated parents and the coaches at Bosque, which lucky for me included my father. Uh, these kinds of dedicated people are the key ingredient to a successful program, and this legacy still continues at Bosque. Um, and this is truly international. Um, you know, I, we're talking about being in Switzerland. I just came back from Verbier, and, um, where I had the opportunity to participate in their preseason snow Sports Instructor Training Program. Um, and Derby has one of the largest and most renowned snow sports programs in the world, and it too is based on these same building blocks, the commitment of community and the people's you know, passion for skiing. So you came up skiing at Biscay. It sounds like you were there constantly. Uh, take us through your career, including your Olympic competitions and that U.S. National Championship. Yeah, so, I mean, the beginning begins in our backyard, you know, with my father shoveling together a mound of snow to create a gentle incline. Um, he would then glide my twin sister and I down the little hill and off began our ski career at the age of two and a half. Um, Amazing. So once old enough, yeah, we would, so we would then accompany him to work at Eastover Resort, um, which is not no longer, but, and also Bosque, where he was a ski instructor. So, uh, before he would start his work day he'd, and give us free reign, he would assign us a couple jobs to, so we could learn some discipline and hard work. Um, and after our jobs were done, my sister and I would bomb around the slopes, never knowing what time it was. It was, it was, you know, like I said before, the ultimate playground. And, you know, you've heard of the book written by Malcolm Gladwell called The Outliers, all about, you know, what makes high achievers different. And, one of the most um, important things is repetition, gaining experience. Mm -hmm. And his research says that, you know, mastering anything, you need those 10,000 hours doing it. Um, 
and that takes about five years at 40 hours per week. So, you know, that's how long Bill Gates was writing code as a teenager, how long Wayne mm-hmm. Gretzky was playing hockey on the frozen slopes. So for me, that was how long um, I was on skis from, you know, our very first Snoopy race at Bosque at seven years old to skiing our way onto the U.S. ski team at the age of 15. Uh, these were the bulk of our 10,000 hours um, from these building blocks um, the rest was incremental, the World Juniors, the U.S. Nationals, and the Olympics. And, you know, I remember distinctly at 12 years old sitting, um, setting myself a goal to be in the Olympics uh, while I was, you know, watching Cindy Nelson race down, race in the World Cup, you know, on a snowy weekend day. And from that point forward, I, I spent a lot of time visualizing. I was often bored in school. And so I would draw ski courses and run them not only in my head, but then I would pencil, pencil them. And it was truly about visualization and repetition from an early age. Um, so after laying that groundwork, the, road, the roadmap really to the Olympics was racing locally, like at Bosque and um, throughout Berkshire County and then regionally and then through North America, then internationally via the Europa Cup and then on to the World Cup. And, and these were the efforts um, to improve my world ranking, to put myself in contention to qualify for, for these international stages of the World Juniors and the Nationals and the World Championships and the Olympics. And which Olympic Games did you compete in, and, and what was your sport? Um, I competed at the 92 Olympics, which is in Maribel, France, and Albertville, and then also in the 94 Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. And this was the um, I'm sure you guys are all old enough. This is the time when they switched the Olympics from four years to two years, every two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is why it was the 92 and 94. And 92 Olympics in, in Maribel, I competed in the downhill um, and the, an event called the downhill combined. And I was, so the downhill combined is a slalom and a downhill race on two different days, and they combined uh, the results. And they ran the downhill first, and I ended up second in the downhill, which was a wonderful thrill of mine in my life. And then Amazing. the next day was a slalom race. Yeah, and um, I hadn't been training a whole lot of slalom, but um, so I fell a little bit behind in the end, and I, I think I ended up 11th or 12th overall. But um, it was it was an amazing experience. Incredible experience, and incredible that now you get to share this experience and these gifts you have with your local community and the mountain you grew up on. Uh, as Kevin mentioned, Basquet is a family mountain and the racing programs there are legendary. Uh, talk about the importance, Krista, of those racing programs to Basquet's culture and community. Yeah, I mean, as I pointed out earlier, any program built with some clear goals and a dedicated community of parents and coaches is, is what makes successful peers. You know, Basquet, uh, they had all of these components. Um, you know, Heidi Boker and her family, our family, the Bessagini family, um, you know, I don't know if these names are familiar, but Nick and Krista Morse from Stockbridge, Josh Cohen, uh, Nancy Gustafson, who went on to the Paralympics to win many medals, um, and Nicole Dulette a little bit after me, um, and Jimmy Clark and his family from the Bessie Clark department store, and Pittsfield also was a big part of the community at the time. Um, they were the premier department store on North Street, which is uh, now home to Hotel on North. Um, all these families, you know, had the goal to provide an environment where their kids could flourish and have fun. Um, and it was common that we'd carpool to races together. Uh, the parents would all cheer us on at the finish line, and they would have the bag lunches for us at the lodge and warm up our hands and, um, you know, hug us after we came down with craft lenses and bloody noses after we had a spill. You know, this, this was our community. Um, and the community culture set us up to be purists, to, you know, to demonstrate good sportsmanship, to go on to ski academies, to high school and collegiate racing, and to the big leagues, you know, and not to mention it really gave us the love and appreciation for nature and the outdoors. So I, I know I'm a little past time here, Krista, so, so this will be the last question I have for you. It, just take us through, what is your role going to be at Biscay, and just take us through the different programs that you'll be managing and how those are different from what Busquet has offered in the past. Yeah, so my role uh, on the mountain will be really to connect and build relationships with guests and the community. Um, specifically, I'm working with Cindy and Pam of the snow sports side, um, supporting the, the current programs and brainstorming with some, about some new ideas. Um, and I'm looking forward to working with and inspiring the 
race club kids on the hill. Um, and what I'm bringing to the table um, is really my lifetime blast of ski experience and the depth of the industry of my ski industry network. Um, I've been able to give input, you know, across the board. I literally, you know, skied at hundreds of ski resorts around the world. So I'm also involved in the physical physical space planning um, for this year and for the future. We've done a ton of research, and as a result, Milltown is in a great position to shape, you know, the way recreation is presented um, for this year and in the future. And they've already, you know, as, as Kevin said, they've adapted to the COVID situation. And on the ski side, for example, um, you know, my friend Philip May, I was talking about the Verbier, um Snow Sports Program. Um, he, he heads up the program there and has, has been a a world champion Swiss speed skier. So, um, you know, I was lucky enough to spend the weekend there participating in the snow sort program pre-instructor training. So having access to these insides is, you know, one of the most, to, to one of the most renowned snow sports in the world, and, you know, is equivalent to going through the paces at the major league baseball training camp. So for me, sharing and bringing this knowledge about cutting-edge approaches to the instruction technique to Bosquet is how, you know, we can offer unique experiences to our guests. And, you know, another way um, I'm making impact is I'll be doing some instructor clinics and one-on-one video analysis and, um, you know, paradoxically offering something old as something new has its place. You know, not every ski area can offer a former member of their race team um, who made it to the Olympics because of their programs to be switching around the slopes um, with everyone. Well, it sounds like an amazing evolution at Biscay uh, in every facet of the business, from the ownership to the day-to-day management to those community programs. Uh, Krista, Kevin, Tim, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know we went a little bit over, uh, but lots of exciting things happening up there. cannot wait to come up and see it all for myself this winter, and I wish you the very best of luck with it. Great. Thanks, Stuart. Milltown CEO Tim Burke, Biscay General Manager Kevin McMillan, and former Olympian Krista Schmiedinger. Have to be feeling real good about how they've approached that whole rebuild project. And that's just the start. There are very good things in store for that ski area over the next several years, and I cannot wait to watch it evolve. So thank you, Team Biscay, for that. And thank you all for listening. Now is a good time to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Got a couple more pods coming before the end of the year, but I'm going to slow it down a bit now that the season's ramping up. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.